the new jobs we're creating. If you look at the 1.2 million new jobs created uh, over the last year, those jobs in general are paying less than the 8 million jobs we've lost between 2008 and 2009 and the beginning of 2010. Sun rays come down as seen when they hit the ground Children spinning around till they fall down, down, down Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Tuesday, March 8th. Uh, that was Robert Reich you heard at the top speaking on the CBS Early Show. He was Labor Secretary under President Clinton. Now he's a professor at University of California, Berkeley. On the show today... Everybody likes to say money doesn't buy happiness. Well, I got bad news. The data's in. Money does buy happiness. We're going to get to that in a minute. But, Jacob, first, I believe you have brought with you a planet money indicator. I have it right here, Adam. In the old school style. Nice. Today's planet money indicator is $725 million. Uh, the U.S. government has about 725 million barrels of oil socked away. It's actually in these giant salt caves in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, this, of course, is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It was created after the oil shock of the 1970s. And the basic idea is that the U.S. has this oil that it can sell onto the market if there's some kind of big global disruption to oil supplies. And I'm using it for the indicator today because, you know, the price of oil has shot up in recent weeks with everything that's going on in North Africa and the Middle East. And we've actually been hearing from some Democrats in Congress lately arguing that we should tap this reserve now. It's so weird, of course, in the U.S. to think that there's anything that the president can influence the price of, like, oh, there's not enough iPads out there. I'm going to release the strategic iPad reserve or the strategic banana reserve or something like that. It's, a, you know, there, there's something very weird about that. But but then I started to think that the price of oil is determined by government fiat every second of every day, not U.S. government, but the whole idea of OPEC, of a global cartel, is that Governments around the world, particularly the Saudi government, choose whether or not to release more or less oil. It's not natural market forces determining supply and demand. It's this incredibly politicized process. And since we in the U.S. have this strategic petroleum reserve, it really does raise some interesting questions, you know, namely, when do we use it? And there are these rules in place, but they're convoluted. And I was talking to a few economists about this this week, and they said, basically, it's up to the president, right? The president decides, yeah, let's let this thing rip. And as it turns out, presidents are pretty reluctant to start selling oil out of this. Which I find weird because... You would think there's always political pressure for oil prices to fall. Like you might think, oh, the president must be releasing it all the time, especially around elections or something. Yeah. And there have been, you know, accusations about that. But it is a pretty high bar. It is the idea that there is some kind of emergency. You know, it was used after Katrina. It was used at the end of the first Gulf War back in the early 90s. So, so it is a pretty big deal. And in fact, the people I was talking to were saying, you know, unrest in Libya, Probably not enough to convince the president to do something. You know, it would be more like unrest in Saudi Arabia. That's when, okay, yeah, let's flip the switch now. The number one oil producing country. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Jacob. Sure, Adam. So there's been this argument within the economics profession in a serious way for like 40 years or so. And it's been a discussion outside of the economics profession forever, whether more money brings more happiness. Well, on today's show, we have an economist, Justin Wolfers. He teaches at the Wharton School and is visiting right now at Brookings Institution. And he says 
there is now a whole bunch of data we never had before. And so for the first time, we can actually answer this question. Does more money bring more happiness? So I should absolutely say I have no idea what makes people happy. Um, I'm an economist. I, I'm no more than that. I'm not going to tell you that you should get married or that you should uh, attend church or that you should read more books or that you should attend the gym more often because, frankly, I don't know the secret to happiness. And you can't tell me if I'd prefer the Justin Bieber movie over eating an Italian meal or whatever. Absolutely. But I may be able to tell your economic policymakers the sorts of policies that are more likely to yield happiness. Gotcha. You know, a very natural question for an economist to ask would be, you know, what is the role of income or money in driving happiness? The old view arose particularly in the 1970s, and it's particularly associated with an economist by the name of Richard Easterlin. Easterlin observed three facts. When you compare rich and poor people in a society at a given point in time, rich people tend to be happier than poor people. So it would make you think money matters. All right. So, so, so you and I live in the same country now. And mm-hmm. um, let's just say for the sake of argument, you make more money than me. I, I think that probably is true. I work for public radio. But um, so he would find that on average, people like you who make more money are happier than people like me who make less money. But I probably am happier than someone within my same country who makes less than I do. Right? Yep. So, so within a country, more money equals more happiness all the way up. So the guy who makes $5 million... On All average, is happier than the guy who makes two million. Who's happier than the guy who makes two hundred thousand? Right. Who's ha- yeah, on and on. Right, we all agree on that inside. Yeah. So you'd think if what we just said were true, then countries that were full of rich people, countries like the U.S., would typically be happier than countries full of poor people, countries like Burundi. Eastland in the nineteen seventies said, "I couldn't find any evidence that that's true." So he examined about a dozen countries. And he couldn't find statistically significant evidence that the richer countries on average were happier than the poorer countries. Well, even when it's as dramatic as the U.S., one of the richest countries in the world, and Burundi, one of the poorest countries in the world? My memory is the poorest country in his data may have been Costa Rica. But still, it's a very dramatic difference. Okay. And then the third fact was that as countries got richer, he failed to find any evidence that, in fact, they got happier. How could all of these things be true? Right. How could in one country rich people are happier, but rich countries are not happier than poor countries? That does seem like a, a paradox. That's why, in fact, it was called the Easterland Paradox. Because Easterland was the guy who came up with that idea, yep. that theory. And so the theory that he suggested could rationalize all this is what you care about is how rich you are relative to other people in your neighborhood or country. And so if you were richer, you were still richer than most Americans, and that made you happier than most Americans, and that's why rich Americans are happier than poor Americans. But on average, Americans wouldn't be happier than Costa Ricans. So it's all about relative income comparisons, keeping up with the Joneses, if you like. It's an intuitively appealing theory. I, I for many years, believed it. It's true everywhere except in the data. It just turns out not to be true. Let's look at how people actually behave. You and I actually have the, the ability to be incredibly rich members of a society. What, what could we do? We could move to Mexico. Right. We'd be the richest folks in town. And Mexicans, middle-class Mexicans, have a way of becoming incredibly poor in relative terms. What, what could they do? The worst thing they could do if they cared about their relative income would be to move to the United States. Yet if you look across the U.S.-Mexican border, a whole lot of Mexicans are looking to go north which is going to yield higher absolute incomes but lower relative incomes. Right. And even within the U.S., I mean, I, I spent some time over Christmas in West Virginia, and 
it did strike me talking to some people there that with my salary, I would be enormously wealthy in West Virginia. You'd be the richest guy in town. Right. In New York, I am definitely not. Right. But it sounds like you chose to come back to New York. And so when you look at these choices, they seem to tell us that people actually don't have a desire to be relatively wealthy. They have a desire to be absolutely wealthy. It turns out our analysis uh, simply suggests that even looking at happiness data, they're not, there isn't and never was an Eastland paradox. So let me explain why. Um, we now have more data than anyone's ever had before about happiness. One of the wonderful things is as this area of research has blossomed, we have just incredible data sets. And I think it would be helpful if you could just walk us through what is the data? So let me first of all declare a conflict of interest, which is that I actually am doing some consulting work with Gallup, and they give me a lot of their data. Right. Fair enough. So Gallup have done an extraordinary job. What they now do is they go into every country in the world. So last count, I think they're in 155 countries. And every year, they survey at least 1,000 people in that country. And they ask dozens and dozens of questions. But of particular interest is a series of questions that were uh, designed in consultation with leading economists and psychologists, including people like Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. Danny's actually a psychologist. Um, people like Alan Kruger and Angus Deaton. The most important question that we analyze is one where they say, um, how satisfied are you with your life? And they say, imagine a ladder. The top rung of the ladder is the best possible life for you. The bottom rung is the worst possible life. There are 10 rungs on this ladder. On which rung are you on the ladder of life? And that question's been obviously translated into dozens of languages. But I've answers to that question from hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. So the thing that I have that previous researchers didn't have is I now have data on happiness and income for 150 countries, where previously people were looking at a dozen countries. When I look at my 155 countries instead, the relationship between satisfaction, these measures of well-being, and measures of average income, which would be gross domestic product per capita, uh, is incredibly robust. Wow. So... so so let me see if I can understand. If if we listed these 155 countries by average income, by the by the average mm -hmm. income of each, each person, and then listed them by happiness, it would be the same list? If the correlation were one, they would be the same list. The correlation is slightly less. It's 0.8. So they're largely similar lists. So when we look at the list of the, the world's happiest countries, we think about um, Denmark and Sweden, the U.S. and Australia and Canada – and we think about the world's least happy countries, and we'd see countries like um, uh, Burundi and Zaire and Zimbabwe. And you think about the world's richest countries, and again, it's those first world nations I mentioned, and you think about the world's poorest countries, and it's those African nations I mentioned. So just incredibly close relationship. So every dollar of more income equals a degree more of happiness? It's not that one extra dollar buys the same amount of happiness for any given country. In fact, that's kind of crazy if you think about it, right? An extra dollar to someone in Burundi is a whole lot more valuable than an extra dollar to you or I. Yeah, I just got back from Haiti where for some people in Haiti, I mean, a day's work that brought in a dollar would be seen as a really good day's work. And yeah. obviously in the U.S., I'm pretty indifferent to doing anything that would just bring me in one more dollar. Right. Um, so what we find instead is a 10% rise in income has roughly the same effect no matter which country you're in. So a 10% rise in the income of someone in Burundi or Haiti 
signifies about as much extra happiness as a 10% rise in the income of someone in the United States. Now, a 10% rise in income in Haiti requires a whole heck of a lot less money than a 10% rise in the incomes of Americans. Now, I got to say, certainly that makes intuitive sense for, for Haiti. I mean, the average income there is somewhere in the, I forget exactly, but four or $500 a yeah. year, so another 40 or 50 bucks. I mean, that, that's serious. That's a serious change. And I got to say, for mm-hmm. me, if my boss called me today and said, you get an extra 10% this year, that'd be pretty great. Um, mm-hmm. But if I had $20 million and I got an extra $2 million, I mean, how many cars and homes and yeah. flights can I take? It, it, it doesn't strike me that that could be that transformative. Right. So there is a question, when does this stuff run out? Um, so there was this view that once your basic needs were met, further rises in income don't make you happier. That view is most assuredly false. Uh, we can look at countries that are earning, you know, five thousand dollars is the average income, ten thousand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand, thirty thousand, all the way along the income distribution. If you keep increasing average incomes, you keep increasing average happiness. Um, I can only tell you about average incomes for as much as we have data. So I couldn't tell you that if average incomes in the United States became $20 million, I have no idea what would happen to average happiness in the United States. There is one thing that's actually worth mentioning here. Whether our well-being continues to increase at these very, very high levels of income depends a little bit on which question you're asking. So we've been focusing so far on these questions that ask about how satisfied are you with your life? These are evaluative questions. Sort of, you know, how do you feel about things overall? If instead we turn to these questions that are more about your affect, did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday, Um, things like that, it turns out that there's not much evidence that those continue to rise with income once you get to sort of a very nice, solid upper middle class level. So Danny Kahneman suggests that the magic number might be close to $75,000 when these affective measures just don't continue to increase after income rises above that. I see. Just the day-to-day. Am I laughing a lot? Am I having yep. fun with my friends? Yep. Got you. So, and, and is that because – I'm just trying to th- make sense of that. Does the money make us happy just having the money or is it the stuff we can buy yep. with the money or the hassles we avoid by having money? This is the really hard thing. Why? So if you thought that the difference between being rich and poor is that you get to afford the iPhone 4 rather than the iPhone 2 um, – is this all just about having a better iPhone? It seems kind of hard to believe money matters at all there, right? The truth is I got an iPhone 4. I'd probably be just as happy with the iPhone 3 and I could live with an iPhone 2. But think about some of the other things that higher incomes bias. So first of all, think about the comparisons between rich and poor countries or even rich and middle income countries. Uh, there are certain things like never having to watch a child of mine die. We should say most people in the world live in a country with rather high infant mortality and have a yeah when they're when a child's born they're they're really wondering is is that child going to live or not certainly not the case luckily for almost all of us in the u.s right this is one of the great freedoms that we've managed to buy ourselves through economic development um i imagine that the feeling of devastation and loss if one loses a child is universal but fortunately we are rich enough that we don't experience it so that's one of the things economic development and higher incomes brought us So that might tell us why richer countries are happier than poorer countries. But then, you know, as I said, we continue to find people express higher levels of happiness at even higher levels of income. So think about some other things. It turns out if you ask people whether they were treated with respect all day yesterday, that increases with income. So maybe a lot of the freedom here is the freedom to pursue our passions. Um, 
And maybe it's about the hour that I spent doing yoga rather than the iPhone 4 that I just bought. And it's, you know, my income means that I'm not worried about poverty. I'm not worried about uh, hunger. So, you know, worry, pain, health, all of these things come along with higher incomes. And it's also the, the freedom to pursue the options we want. So this is why actually maybe money's the wrong metric to talk about. Because if I told you money is highly correlated with being happy, then you might think that what I'm doing is I'm advising the younger you to go to Wall Street rather than going to NPR. Because in Wall Street, you'd make a lot of money. And I told you that richer people are happy than poorer people. But maybe it's actually that what's really going on is the relationship is between happiness and your potential for earning income. And so then I'd say that the policy implication may be instead that what government should try and do is increase the potential for their populations to earn income. So this then says that what we want is to increase the level of economic development in poor countries so that people then have the opportunities to earn higher incomes. Some of them will choose to earn the higher income and some of them will choose to work at the equivalent of NPR. Uh, it also suggests that even in the United States, things that raise your potential to make or increase the number of choices you'll have later in your life are things that are likely to increase your well-being. Okay. And then the, the other thought I have is I, I had this interesting experience recently. Our, our translator in Haiti came to New York for the first time a few months ago. And this was exactly what happened when my translator from Baghdad came to New York. Both said the exact same thing. I thought they're coming from very poor, troubled places. They're going to come to New York and it, their minds are going to explode at our wealth and you know Times Square and all the shopping malls and everything. And they're just going to think, wow, this is amazing. And both the Iraqi and the Haitian translator, their strongest impression was people are so lonely here. No one spends any time with their family. People are just working all the time. They seem so sad. And I found that so incredibly striking. And, and it made me recognize that in, in Iraq, where I've spent a fair bit of time, in Haiti, where I've spent a fair bit of time, personal happiness or personal satisfaction is is not that important to people. What's important is your connection to your family, um, your yeah. connection to others. And there's no question, I would think, right, that as you move to a higher income, higher wealth country, those family ties do break. An important question here is, is happiness the thing we really care about? And so for some people, the answer is yes. And so there are certainly people who believe that what government should do is go out and target the, the policies that will raise gross national happiness to their highest possible level. But other people suggest that there's uh, more to living a fulfilled life than just uh, living your life smiling a lot. Um, and so maybe it's connections with family. Maybe it's all sorts of things. So let me give an example. Um, one of the stylized facts in this literature is that uh, people who have kids are less happy than people who don't have kids. And that suggests that if what we wanted to do was maximize the happiness of our society, we should just prevent childbirth, you know, mass sterilization. That strikes me as a completely absurd conclusion to draw. I recently became a parent. When you talk to a parent and you ask, you know, did having a kid make you happy? Sometimes they'll say no. And then you say, would you do it again? And they always say yes. And you say, why? People will usually start to talk about other things that matter to them besides their own affective state. So it may be that they become a parent because somehow they find meaning in being a parent. And if that's the case, then we need to expand our understanding of what's good beyond just happiness. 
And once you start thinking through this path, um, you, you can actually start to think of a whole bunch of other factors that may be important to people as well. Living a, a fulfilled spiritual life is important to some, for instance. Being good to others is important to some. And so these broader objectives suggest that what society really wants, what we as individuals actually try and maximise and what society perhaps should be trying to optimise is going to be something broader than just happiness. Maybe happiness does a better job than narrow things like gross domestic product, but it also suggests there are other subjective states that are really important to living a, a full life. Bitter heart, bitter heart, shadows will help you try to hide. I'd like to thank the Global Prosperity Wonkcast from the Center for Global Development. I heard Justin on that podcast and thought he was really good, so I decided to steal their idea. I listen to that podcast a lot. It's really good. It is wonky, as its name implies, but it's a good, lively conversation about global development issues. I also want to mention quickly a couple events coming up. I spoke with Justin about our Haitian translator and driver, Sebastian Narcisse. I'm really excited. He's going to be in New York on Thursday, March 24th, and he and I are going to do a live event together. We're going to show his amazing photographs. He spends most of his time as a professional photographer in Haiti, and we're going to talk about the work we've done together in Haiti and how he as a Haitian views life here in the U.S. That's going to be at the Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora Art in Brooklyn, not too far from BAM. So people in New York, I do hope you might come to that. I think a lot of the Planet Money team will be there. And then another event is on April 15th, Tax Day. Alex Bloomberg and I are going to be giving a speech at the Southern Connecticut State University John Lyman Center for the Performing Arts. We're working really hard on this. It's going to be the premiere of a new hour-long presentation of a lot of the work we've done on this podcast and there will be sound and sights and fun and laughter. It should be really fun. You can get tickets to that. The, the link is also on the blog. Uh, the blog, of course, is at npr.org slash money. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. You can leave your comments on the blog or you can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We really do love hearing from you. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening. All inside Bitter heart, bitter heart Shadows will help you try to hide Bitter heart, my bitter heart Is getting just a little fragile